Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, I am very pleased to welcome back to the show Twisted Sister founder and guitarist, Mr. Johnny J.J. French. Johnny, how are you, man? Oh, my God. I, I haven't been called Johnny since the little old ladies in my building would go, Johnny, I knew you that you were so small, and now you're so big. And, <laughs> and, and when they say that, they get older every year, so they they shrink. So they when they go, they knew me when I was so big. I'm like about two feet tall when they say they, they knew me. Anyway, I'm good, Brent. How are you, Brenty? Brenty's Brent, Brent, Brent good? Brenty's good. He's good. good. Yeah. Okay. What's going on in uh, in New York City? Eh, well, I'm not in New York City. That's what's going on. I'm kind oh. of happy. I'm in the Hamptons. I'm in the Hamptons, man. Oh. You know, I'm, staying, I'm staying out in the Hamptons in a beautiful house with a beautiful heated pool, which is what you need in 90-degree weather, a heated pool, you know. And a friend of ours gave us, uh, my wife and myself, their house for a week because, nice. you know, people who have a house out here are never here, you know. So they they go, take our place. We're never there. You know, seriously, these are good friends of ours. And they gave us their house for the week. So we're kind of just hanging by a pool. Good. Good for you. Listen, uh, happy belated birthday. It was your birthday July 20th, wasn't it? Yeah, it was last week. Thank you. Or a couple of, you know, like July 20th for those of you who want to send gifts. <laughs> Mine's on the way. I got you another guitar. Oh, gee, just what I need. Like I need a guitar like a nun needs birth control. I know. I know. Uh, you know, I have sixty of them, and it really is true. When you don't have money, you can't afford them. When you got plenty and money, everyone just hands you another guitar. <laughs> and when I go to when I go to trade shows, every guitar company is, oh man, here have a guitar. And I go, listen, let me let me explain this to you. Unlike the whores that walk around these aisles and take everything and tell you they're going to use them, I'm going to tell you straight out. I'm probably never going to play your guitar on stage. <laughs> I'm probably never going to be seen with your guitar on my body anywhere. But if you still want to give me one, that's fine. But don't expect to ever see me play. <laughs> and more than likely, I will sign it and give it to a charity. So I said, if you want to do that, and they still do, by the way. And, 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 and by the way, many of these guitars are fine. It's just that I like the ones I like. And I play... The ones I play, and if I'm doing local gigs, like if I'm playing around Manhattan with some friends, yeah, and they want me to play blues for a couple of songs, you know, anything that I don't really have to think about, I can just go up and do it. I bring my '54 Les Paul Junior that I've owned for 35 years, and I just plug it in and do my thing and go home, you know, and it's fine. And I, I mean, my other '59 guitars kind of sit there, going, "Play me, please." <laughs> my friends go, "Give me one or sell them or whatever." So I don't know. So, so you've played since I saw you last last, last October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pick up, you know, like um, there's a private party that's happening in, in August, and uh, I'm going to be playing uh, some songs with a local guy named Johnny Rosh, okay. who I'm sure you've never heard of. He's uh -huh. a keyboard player in New York City. He just happens to know the best musicians in the world, and when they come through New York, if Johnny's playing in a local club, they join him. So he has. On any given night, Will Lee playing bass or Anthony Jackson playing bass or Tony Garnier from Dylan and Paul Simon's band playing bass nice. and Iris Siegel on guitar or, you know, like he has the collection of ridiculous players that join him on a stage in little bars, like little like dinner theater club type places in Manhattan. Yeah. And he has one of those voices. You know, if you can sound like Bob Seeger, you can be in anybody's band. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you just being anybody's band he's got one of those fm radio great and he, johnny's got that voice he's got that seeger ish thing and um and so he can cover a multitude 
of styles, and he's phenomenal. So anyway, Johnny, the Johnny Rosh band, R-O-S-C-H, I'm going to give him all the credit in the world. I love Johnny. Mm-hmm. They're playing a private party for a friend of mine, and uh, I'm going to join them on stage. And Johnny's a great front man, but um, when I do my occasional blues gigs with the Pink Slip Blues Band, of mm-hmm. which we have spoken about in the past, which involves me, um, the drummer for Leonard Skinner, Michael Cardelloni, the guitar player for White Snake, Joel Hoekstra, yeah. and Bobby Held, the bass player who is Joe Bonamassa's first producer, who's a great, also a great songwriter and has written for Kiss, and he's a great bass player. Um, Johnny Ross joined us on stage, and he was my backup guy. And I'm the one that always tells the stories, because frankly, Brent, and I know this is a shock to you, <laughs> Yeah. I can literally be on stage for three hours and never play a song. I can just tell a story. <laughs> but I do know that that's a sock and a stunner. Anybody who's ever seen me live, they can't imagine how that could be. <laughs> so Johnny could do that too. So between me and Johnny, we could probably do 48 hours of stand-up and you'd never hear a song <laughs> play. Anyway. Well, that's good, man. When is that? That's August uh, 10th at a at a, a, a private party in um, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So. Cool. Hey, one more thing before we get into your tunes. I saw those uh, pictures that you had up on Facebook, the recording of uh, Sisters Under the Blade back in uh, 82 in Hastings, England. Those pictures are great. I just found them, and I'm trying to remember who took them, and I think who took them was Charlie Bureka, our sound man, who is in one of those pictures of us sitting in front of the hotel that we were living in. Charlie just passed away a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago after a long illness. Um, he had a liver transplant that Twisted Sister helped raise money for it in a benefit around 12 years ago. And I met Charlie in Bermuda in 1969. Um, and that's 50 years ago this summer. In fact, 50 years ago, right this minute, I was in Bermuda for the first time, met Charlie, as well as met the person who ultimately introduced me to the person that got me into Twisted Sister. So if I hadn't gone to Bermuda, you would not know that Twisted Sister ever would have existed as a band. But having said that, going back to the photos, I think this was Charlie's photos that he handed me years ago. And I recently renovated my apartment and found a whole bunch of photos. And I found the photos from the recording session of of Under the Blade. And you know what really bothers me is that, you know, you would think we would have done extensive photo sessions for every album. And Mm -hmm. why we didn't blows me away because I don't have a record of can't stop rock and roll. We lived at Jimmy Page's house for, you know, three months. Yeah. You'd think one of us would take pictures, you know, of the house, us in the studio, recording, you know, nothing. But we do have under the blade and, and we have the portion of it that was in the barn. And the barn was one of five studios that we wound up using because we had very little money and we'd jump from place to place, whatever was cheaper. Yeah. And the record label was able to like cut deals and make it, you know, as cheap as possible because I think the cost of the record was 18,000 pounds, which, you know, is probably like 23 grand or something, I think. And we, and it just so happened we were in a studio in Southern England and we had an argument with the studio owner. And so, the label found this barn not far from there and um, where the Battle of Hastings was fought. Now, for anybody with any kind of historical knowledge, the Battle of Hastings is one of the most critical battles in the history of England. And this farm was basically built at the bottom of the hill where the Battle of Hastings was fought. Now, you're an American. We go back, you know, 300 years, 400 years. But most people would tell you in the neighborhoods they live in, that the neighborhood is maybe... 50 years old, 100 years old. I mean, I live in New York City. New York City is, you know, 200. I mean, I think it was incorporated 200 years ago. So the amount of history is not all that great. But in England, everything is ye olde billions of years old. You know, it's like a freaking Harry Potter movie. So (laughs) 
here we are in Hastings, and you know, I'm sitting on this barn recording. And so you saw the barn, right? You saw me standing outside of the barn oh, recording yeah. my, my tracks. I'm staring at the at the hillside where the Battle of Hastings was fought, just thinking, well, in 1099, you know, people are just being slaughtered. You know, yeah. guy, it's like Game of Thrones stuff. You know, everyone's like cutting their heads off, and and it's said, yeah, but in a thousand years, a heavy metal band will be playing their album. <laughs> Under the blade, right here where we're killing each other, there'll be martial stacks and and drums and bass guitar, and it'll <laughs> fill the outside with metal, and that's the future. That's what we're... You know. <laughs> so I'm kind of sitting there recording these guitar parts going, wow, man, this is like history. Like, if I'm standing on the corner of Broadway and 86th Street in Manhattan, and I'm looking, you know, uh, that, what's, what, what's that? Like, I don't know, 100 years ago, maybe it was a farm there. I mean, I don't know. You know, 200 years ago, there were Indians running around 300 years ago. I mean, but this is this is real English shit. And like England is just so cool. Yeah. It comes to that kind of stuff. It's so steeped in rich history. And if you know it, it's great. Of course, if you don't, it's just another barn. Right? It's just another, <laughs> it's just another cow. Big right. fucking meal. Like, it's just another, it's just another rural rural experience but if you know that you're at the battle of hastings then it meant something so i'm recording my guitar parts to shoot them down i'm just kind of laughing as i'm staring at this field going wow yeah or you know whatever you know 900 years ago now 900 years later another thing famous happened the recording of under the blade <laughs> there you go cool the pictures are cool the haystacks in the barn were funny i mean the hay bales divided up because it was a barn so it's like noisy, right? It's like a big open barn. Mm -hmm. Stuck the marshals around the drums. And, you know, we're actually playing, as you saw, with like hay bales around us. Like yeah. You can't make this stuff up. And it is really spinal tappy. Yeah. In a way, you know. Uh, what kind of stacks are you using? Well, hay stacks, obviously. You know? <laughs> no, no, not the amplifier. <laughs> oh, the marshal. I thought you were talking about the fucking hay stacks. You <laughs> fucking moron, you know? So, like... There's haystacks, and Mendoza and the farmer did say that the hens laid thirty percent more eggs during the bass recording, and he told me that. That's really funny. When Mark was recording the bass parts, because AJ and Mark recorded them first, Mark's bass was rumbling, and you could hear his bass. You know, as you were driving towards the barn, if he was recording and you were like a mile away, you could hear the rumblings, and you were slowly getting closer, and you're going, "Wow, man, that shit's loud." Yeah. I mean, that's unbelievable. And um, and the farmer goes, "Yeah, yeah, the hens lay thirty percent more eggs." And I said, "Well, do we get money from that?" I mean, <laughs> anyway, so we record a rack mobile, a rack. R.A.K. is the name of the studio, and I think Mickey Most, who is a famous record producer in England, for those who don't know, produced Yardbirds and yeah. billions of hits, a you know, super famous guy. I think it was his mobile unit, and we managed to rent it. And we managed to do the basic tracks um, in that barn, and then moved on to uh, five other studios before we finished the record. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. We just had that. We, we did a little bit here, a little bit there. I think we listed most of them on the album credits. I think you kind of see them. They were like, they were all over the way. We wound up in Jethro Tull's studio called <laughs> Maison, Maison Rouge, I think. In London, we wound up in Cliff, uh, Cliff Richards, you know, the pop star yeah, yeah, Cliff yeah. Richards. Yeah. Studio down in, um, on the water in one of the water towns down, down the, on the British um, coast. And I think we were, I mean, they're all listed. And it's just, it was just, that was our kind of introduction you know, to, um, to England doing the recording there. So it's kind of cool. Must've been fascinating for you. Yeah. You yeah. Know. All right, man. So listen, you've got, uh, five, well, you've got six songs here. 
we're going to kick it off with the opening track from one of my all-time favorite records, Sticky Fingers. It's Brown Sugar from the Rolling Stones. Okay, so 1971. That's when that record came out. Yeah. The album comes out in 1971, and I am in England for the summer of 71. Okay. And uh, it was the youth tour of Europe because uh, the, coll- the uh, airlines are charging $200 round trip. And of course, I went because it was like um, it was like nomads, you know, just like hippies, American hippies. It was college fair to Europe. So I go to Amsterdam, which was the drug capital of the world. Not a bad place to be, mind <laughs> you, in 1971. I mean, I'm having an amazing, amazing time. I'm with there with my buddy Victor, and uh, you get to London, and it was like electrifying. First day in London, there was a free concert in Hyde Park. That was my first day in London. I'd never been to London before. And I was a hippie. You know, I looked like a member of the Allman Brothers back in those days. So yeah. I was staying in a youth hostel off Kensington High Street. Hyde Park was a couple blocks away. And you, you, you came to realize being in London that London was an electrified rock and roll town. Rock was playing out of every storefront. Record stores were everywhere. The restaurants were playing rock music. The names of the restaurants were... Um, the Spaghetti Factory, the Great American Disaster. The great, uh, by the way, for those of you who don't know, the Great American Disaster um, had gigantic posters of Great American Disasters all over the the restaurant, like the sinking of the Titanic and the Hindenburg and all this stuff. And the and the waiters spoke in fake Brooklyn accents. <laughs> oh, man, what do you want, man? Use one a burger, man. You know, like they're trying to sound like the Sopranos, but with an English accent, doesn't exactly. <laughs> translate but they're trying to be rude yeah i guess they think that we're just all rude in new york you know they're just trying to be rude <laughs> which is kind of funny because you know there's a joke about new yorkers and the joke is that a that a british guy gets lost in manhattan and he walks up to a new yorker and he says excuse me my dear fellow can you tell me where i can find the empire state building or should i just go fuck myself <laughs> so, <laughs> so i'm thinking you know is it really that bad anyway so um so rock is playing out of everything, you know, and Sticky Fingers was huge. That's, I mean, that summer was huge. So the songs that we, some of the songs I picked are the songs that summer because it was so vibrant, so astonishingly vibrant. And Sticky Fingers, the album is one of those Stones classic records, and Brown Sugar is one of the Stones classic tracks. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, they've, got, they've got, you know, several dozen spectacularly classic tracks, and that song um, is one of those spectacular tracks, and it kind of makes me remember uh the summer of 71 yeah it's fantastic that whole record start to finish in my estimation is great those 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 four records actually exile came after that yeah well you know i kind of did an article for goldmine because you know i write for goldmine and i wrote the beatles versus the stones classic era versus classic era yeah and for the beatles i had the classic era which was i believe is rubber soul revolver Sergeant Pepper, um, White Album, Abbey Road, which, my God, is like, you know, what are you going to say about that? You may as well just like, go home, right? It's like Babe Ruth's home run record or some shit. Like, you just go home. Except the Stones, you know, they had, uh, they had Sticky Fingers, they had Let It Bleed, uh, they had you know, Exile on Main Street. Oh, gosh, I'm missing, I'm missing one here. Beggar's Banquet? Oh, Beggar's Banquet, of course, right? And, and, and those four records, I'm sorry, I think they're some of the greatest rock records ever made. Oh, yeah. Just phenomenal. Now, some people can argue and tell me, well, you've got to go back further because you had five albums for the Beatles and four for the Rolling Stones. You should go back to Aftermath or Out of Our Heads. And you could, except, you know, then you got Satanic Majesty's Request, and that kind of like throws a monkey wrench into the works because it depends on how you view that 
as either a great record or nothing more than a, a, a lame attempt to try to catch up with the Beatles. I happen to think it's a great record, incidentally, but I think that it's unassailable that starting with Beggar's Banquet, um, going through uh, Sticky Fingers, Let It Bleed, and Exile, you've got four ridiculous, phenomenal records. And Sticky Fingers, of course, in 71 was one of them. And Brown Sugar jumps out of a radio, like an AM radio, FM radio, doesn't matter where. When you hear those, dun, dun, oh, dun, yeah. it's crazy how great it is. It, you're absolutely right. Those four records are just completely unassailable. Yeah, you can listen to all four of them in their in their completion all the time. You just yeah. put them on, start to finish. You don't want to pick up "Sorry the Needle" for those of you who don't know. You know what that <laughs> you, know, you put the tone arm on the record player, although it's become hip again. I love it's become hip. It's because the fans are so old; they need something big enough to read. You know, that's. <laughs> one of I mean, that's why the iPad became successful. Think about it. You know, everyone wants smaller, smaller. And Steve Jobs says, no, people are blind. They need something bigger, bigger. Yeah. Let's just call it something hip so they won't realize that they're carrying an oversized tablet because they can't <laughs> fucking read anything. And let's label it iPad and everyone will buy one. But actually what I've succeeded in doing is just making you understand that you need help looking at shit. Okay. So <laughs> with record albums, of course, you get the beauty of owning a piece of material, you know. And But, you know, vinyl is a great medium and the rolling stones are best heard on vinyl that's my humble little opinion all the little you know listening to old records the scratches and the crackling that just that just adds to the experience i think well you know those of you who took acid and and, and st stood on your turntable while it was turning you know and ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while you were coming down off a of weed and spilling your jelly on the album and reminiscing how great that was as you listened to the, the scratches i actually I'm an audiophile, and while that's romantic and cool, I also have really good equipment. And when you clean a record and you play it, you just understand that the sonics of an album are not the same sonics as on the CD. They're just not. They're different. Um, there's a different transference of music. Now, some people may not know or care. Younger people hear an MP3 and think it sounds fine. And frankly, it doesn't sound bad. And the truth is, Brent, that when I fell in love with rock and roll, I fell in love with it through a one-inch transistor radio, mm -hmm. you know, and it spoke to me. So I didn't need the audiophile experience of pretending I was in the mixing room. However, the quality of playback has gotten to the point, both CD and vinyl, where the feeling of being connected to the mixing console has gotten better and better and better. And on really good vinyl, if you really understand vinyl, uh, it's actually more satisfying to listen to, but it takes a little bit more time. I mean, my wife is fond of like saying to me, you know, when I hear James Taylor, when I want James Taylor, I can push two buttons on my Sonos and hear it immediately. But you want to play James Taylor, you got to watch the record first. You got to turn on your preamp. You got to turn on the phone or preamp. You got to turn on the this. You got to flick, take the record out of the cleaning machine. You got to put it on. You got to put the weight on that. You get to the arm. The time you're doing that, I'm listening to, I've been listening to James Taylor for 20 minutes. And I say to her, you're hundred percent right. Which is God, why God created Sonos, you know, because it's the easiest thing on the world, in the world, and it's kind of cool to have that kind of access to anything that fast. But if you have a little less neurosis in your life and you want to sit back with a cup of coffee or anything else you may want to sit back with and just luxuriate in a sonic bath that sounds amazing, vinyl sounds amazing. And bands like the Stones and these other groups that we're going to be naming, you know, made great records. Do you know what I mean? They didn't oh, make yeah. great CDs. They made great records. Yeah. So completely, completely agree. Yeah, I just came back from the Munich Hi-Fi show, by the way. Oh. The world's biggest hi-fi show. Five hundred and fifty exhibitors. The prices of the turntables started at two hundred bucks. 
Yeah. For companies like Project and Rega, I'm sure you've heard of these companies, right? Yeah. And they make nice tables for 200, 300, 400, 500 dollars. They're really nice. They come with cartridges built in them, you know, the needle and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But do you know that there is a turntable by a company called TechDOS, T-E-C-D-A-S, and it's called the TechDOS Zero. So you, for you freaks out there that want to like go online and look at this shit, <laughs> it costs $430,000. Oh. Now, you may say, what the fuck is worth it? Does it sound good? Well, number one, yeah, <laughs> it sounds good. Records do sound good on it. Whether you need to spend $430,000 is totally up to you. You know, um, there are plenty of turntables that, you know, are 500 bucks, a thousand. You see price points of 2000, 10,000, 15, 20. There's probably 10 companies that make turntables over a hundred thousand bucks. And then there's like four companies that make them over $200,000. And then there's this one company that makes this ridiculous, stupid thing for 430. And if you got that kind of money, you're obviously buying it for other reasons. If you follow what I'm saying, it's like owning a watch. You know, you can buy a Casio for like 10 bucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, a Timex or, a, you know, whatever, Bulova for a couple hundred bucks and it tells time and it's fine. And then you can also spend two million bucks on a Richard meal. <laughs> uh, Paddock Philly, um, a Grubel 4C, a, a, a Romain Gautier. I'm sure these are models nobody even knows about. And they're like crazy fucking, they're like up, upwards of $2 million. In fact, you can't tell the time. They're so complicated that you need to look <laughs> at your phone. Which, by the way, I interviewed the guy from Grubel 4C. So I, was, I wanted to interview him for Inc. Magazine. Yeah. And I went to these watch shows and, and I said to him, can I meet you in 20 minutes? And he goes, great. I said, what time is it? He pulled out his phone. I said, what are you looking at your phone for? He said, I can't tell the time looking at my watch. Oh, <laughs> what man. The hell? Why do you have that? He goes, because it's jewelry. So anyway, the point being is, the point being is on vinyl. You do, there, there comes a point where spending more doesn't make sense. But if you have a really good turntable and a really good phone preamp, vinyl's fun to listen to. I love, I love listening to it. So that's why Brown Sugar is the first track that we discussed. All right. So second, you've got Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story. Also 1971, I believe. Yes. And um, you're going to get most of these songs are from that summer because that summer was such a pivotal summer in my life. You can imagine walking around London in 71 and you hear songs and they're all on that list. Um, you hear uh, Brown Sugar yeah. and you hear Every Picture Tells a Story. And that album is an amazing record. We all know how great Rod Stewart is. But frankly... When you get farther away from Gasoline Alley and every picture tells a story and you mm -hmm. get through his faces work back into the disco world, it becomes less interesting to me. His work when he was with the Jeff Beck group and his work, um, did his first several solo records were incredible. Yes. I mean, his voice was still great. I mean, he's good. Let's face it. Rod is one of the great vocalists of all time, but. His work on Gasoline Alley and his work on Every Picture Tells a Story uh, is incredible. Not to mention his work with Jeff Beck on the, you know, Truth and Beckola. Oh my God! Yeah. Sp Spanish Boots, Jailhouse Rock. Uh, it's incredible. But if you really want to find uh, the greatest vocal he's ever done, in my opinion, yeah. Um, I, and I think it's hard to find because it's a best of Jeff Beck record, and um, it's got Jeff Beck singing lead on a song, which is like almost Yoko Ono level. <laughs> it's kind of like this is the reason why he doesn't sing. <laughs> uh, Hi ho, silver lining. He sings on it, but anyway, Rod sings a song on this best of Beck, which is a, only a European import, but you can probably find it online, I'm sure. And it's a song called "I've Been Drinking Again" by Dinah Washington, who wrote it, like she did the original, or she sang the original version of it. Listen to Rod's vocal on I've Been Drinking Again. It'll blow your mind. But having said that, back to Summer 71, that's another song from that summer. 
that was blasting out of all the restaurants and the, the clothing shops, the boutique stores, the record stores. And it evokes a time for me. Uh, I'm 19 years old, footloose, fancy free, running around Europe, having a hell of a great time. Awesome. So next, The Who, Bob O'Reilly, also 1971 from Who's Next. Same, same deal. Yeah. Think about how great, well, does this not underline how great 71 was? Oh, yeah. I mean, does this not uh, underline the immense importance? I mean, it's almost like when you talk about 1967 and you look at you know what came out in 67, you had The Doors debut, The Grateful Dead debut, Jefferson Airplane, Surrealistic Pillow, Jimi Hendrix debut, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts. <laughs> I mean, Magical Mystery Tour. I mean, you've got Procol Harum's debut record. I mean, it's sick what yeah. 67 did, right? It's sick. Buffalo Springfield again. Loves Forever Changes. These are ridiculous records and greatest records, some of the greatest records ever made. So 67 is a crazy, great, great, great year. But 71 was also a crazy, 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 great year. You know, now you have to remember it's the year after the Beatles broke up. That's right. So we're, we're licking our wounds post Beatles because, you know, they gave us Abbey Road in, uh, in October, late September, October 69. We're coming up to the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road. Think about that. Crazy. So, and that's the last recorded album they made. Now, they, they released Let It Be later on, but it was recorded before Abbey Road. Abbey Road was their attempt to, you know, make sure they would end on a high note, which, of course, we all know they ended up on the highest note of any mortal that ever walked this earth yeah. with Abbey Road. But uh, 69 was, was, you know, 69 was was that. But 70, so here we are licking our wound in 71. And I'll tell you what, we're getting over it pretty easily. Why? Because we've got unbelievable music. Yeah. The Who releases Who's Next. The Rolling Stones release Sticky Fingers. Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story. I mean, come on. Phenomenal music. All right. That concludes part one of my chat with John French from Twisted Sister. Be sure to tune in next week to hear the second part of our conversation in which John discusses his disdain for beer, Canadian or otherwise, and uh, some other funny and insightful stuff too. Till next week, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suffering, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 